Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Episode of Really True Fiction. Yes, welcome. My name is David Parker. And my name is Luke Mason. Thank you for coming back down (laughs) to South Park. (laughs) We wanted to do another episode on South Park because we felt like we just didn't get enough said about the overall themes in South Park last time. So, and we just love the humor of South Park and the role it plays in our culture and society. So we thought, why not talk about it again? Yeah, well, there's a lot more still to talk about because. If you've heard our previous episode, we tried to focus as best as possible on the characters in that one. And yet in that episode, which is, I think, almost two hours still, we only got through about five pages of my nine pages of notes (laughs) for the characters. So we had to do another one. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that when I was reflecting a little bit on what South Park has meant to me personally in my life and the joy I've gotten out of it. And obviously the characters are super funny, but I think it would be a missed opportunity or we'd be remiss to not talk about the role it plays socially and like the kind of, um, it has the finger on the pulse of things. The zeitgeist. Yeah, it, it is, but it's, it's well, also... It's not, yeah, it's, it's more of a critique of the zeitgeist. Yeah, and it's just kind of like keeping the temperature... <laughs> it's yeah. almost like it's a canary in a coal mine yeah and 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 it's like south park has a thermometer for our own society and culture and it's a harbinger for things that are coming i just think that there was enough not brought up so i guess this is our first well i don't know does this count as our first part two yeah i mean unless we're going trilogies yeah i know because like Lord of the Rings, but... But not really a part two. I guess, because it's all one story. I don't think we'll go back to Lord of the Rings, though. <laughs> well, I well, mean, we this might. is this is our first podcast part two, I guess. Yes. As opposed, like, maybe if we did a second episode on one of the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> that'd be a part two. <laughs> so what we want to talk about today is we're going to go through some of the episodes specific that we watched to talk about this, which I relayed last time. And just notice some of the things in it that strike us from from a social aspect or like a meditative aspect on why is something this way? Who makes it this way? Why do we keep it this way? And of course, the social commentary is buffered. It's like an iceberg. The commentary is the 10% on top and the 90% under the water is the humor that keeps it afloat that lets us see the little bit of social commentary that I think would just by itself, it'd be kind of boring, but all of the humor of South Park. And that's the other part. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the humorous ass, the things that just honestly make me laugh out loud when I'm by myself, <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> which South Park probably does the best. So the first thing that I noticed is from the Jubilee episode um, where Kyle and his little brother Ike 
go to Jubilee, which is like a party <laughs> where uh, they have to make macaroni pictures for Moses <laughs> to please <laughs> Moses kind of thing. And uh, early in the episode, Kyle, who's going to Jubilee, asks his parents if Kenny can come. And uh, I can't remember exactly what they say, but it's something along the lines of, well, you know, Jubilee is a very special occasion. And so Kyle asks, why isn't Kenny special? <laughs> And it's like, it's funny, right? Like it's, you understand as a kid asking that question, these kind of like awkward jo- or awkward questions that kids ask. But it made me think, it seems to me like that's actually getting at a really deep point about any identity group and how humanity is much bigger than any given identity group. And so then to not let Kenny join is exclusion. And it's silly in this scenario because it's a jubilee, it's I don't even know if those are real things. Oh yeah, no. So a jubilee in Jewish culture is every fifty years they'd have this time period where they would ah, okay. forgive debts. So right. the jubilee was when every fifty years you had to forgive all the debts that anyone owed you, uh, and it was called the jubilee. Because where was, was that decreed? Yeah, it's in Leviticus. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> now don't say. <laughs> yes. Don't, well, don't say they're not thorough. <laughs> Yes, we're very in, in th- a study. thorough in our like, in our study of these good things. Good job, David. <laughs> but yeah. but the point of of that is, um, and I agree with what you were saying. the The larger point is this idea of identity wrapped up in culture and mm-hmm. and whatever you choose to to utilize as your identity. I wanted to make a shout out to Tim Urban's blog. Wait, but why on this? He's currently doing a series called "The Story of Us," which I think is an incredible deep dive into the biology and psychology and sociology of groups and tribes, why we're attracted to identities, why we socialize the way we do to uh, feel safe in our identities, why there are in-groups and out-groups, why there are us versus them. The thing that always fascinates me about that is everything seems so arbitrary and yet so important to the people <laughs> in those groups. Yeah. Like the, the orthodoxies of of staying in line with the group, whether you're a conservative Hill staffer or a, uh, or, you know, an Orthodox Jew or a Sunni Muslim versus a Shia Muslim. Like the, when we're being honest with ourselves, we have way more similarities than differences across the board as humans. And I guess what I am feeling like is missing in this episode of South Park is the, what would you say? The beneficent attitude of extending something of your culture to someone else so that they can learn about it. I just was thinking, like, when I was in, I lived in South Korea for a long time, and I remember introducing a co-teacher to a lot of the music I liked, and he really liked Oasis. Like, he, and so we are singing, we're belting out Wonderwall together kind of thing, one night at Noribong, which is a karaoke room. (laughs) (laughs) And am I supposed to be kind of exclusive about well look well I mean I don't even fit this category but it's like you know what Oasis means a lot to the working class in Manchester and so that's are we, just are kind we appropriating of, them? yeah is that special enough for me a Canadian and my friend who's Korean to be but as opposed to like no like here's this awesome thing from a cultural background I have in that vein, one of the one of my favorite things to do when I was in Korea was, for non-Canadians friends, share the band The Tragically Hip with people because obviously they're huge in Canada, and 
not well known anywhere else and just the beauty of their music i feel so excited to share with other people and you know a plethora of other aspects of canadian culture that we're sharing and i think that that and obviously i'm very sensitive to the fact that kyle is jewish and they <laughs> among a strong competition they the jewish people probably win history's most persecuted people <laughs> yeah they, right? they've suffered a lot that's and, for sure yeah. and anti-semitism is the scourge of humanity i would say and yet i just think that there is as we progress through this 21st century and cosmopolitanism taking over i look around and see things like exclusive cultural practices as being well a less relevant but also be less kind of excusable it for trying to reach across the aisle of our neighbors who you know living in a big city in canada a lot of our neighbors are from other countries or have immigrated here or have our first generation and like i'm super curious to learn about those kind of things from people from pakistan or from india or from china or from uh, nigeria like I'm, I love learning about that kind of stuff. And I love, for lack of a better term, teaching people about things about Canada too. And I guess I have less and less patience for the impulse to be parochial and inward looking with your group as we learn about all the great things in the world that we can share with each other. So, so I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I actually agree with you. But like, here's a thought. I bet you if you ask people why they feel there needs to be exclusivity is because they want to keep it special, right? They want to keep it separate. And if you're just letting everyone in, there's this fear that it could become polluted or, you know, like like it's not as, um, like di- diluted, sorry, not polluted, diluted. And, um, and therefore not as rich. And I mean, growing up the way I did, orthodoxy was so important and there was always the discussion of whether you were an orthodox Christian. And, and I mean orthodoxy in the uh, theological sense, not in the... Um, sect sense that was so important because it, it, it delineated whether or not you were in the group or not and I understand that tendency and I understand the desire for that tendency it gives a sense of security it gives a sense of purpose it gives a sense of place in the world uh, and maybe if that didn't exist we wouldn't have different cultures we'd just be kind of an, uh, uh, you know a soup of, of everything so what do you what do you think of that like is there a place for exclusivity in cultures in order to maintain the, let's say, um, uniqueness of that culture? I, I think that you would run into a lot of logical problems. At face value, that doesn't sound completely crazy, but then all these questions start rushing to my mind, like, okay, well then how many people do you need to make it a perfect amount of people like one more than this number is too many. It starts to be dilated one less and it's not like there's no, I, I just think that that's arbitrary. And I think that also, I guess I just don't see a logical reason why a vitality of a cultural practice can't be my, maintained even if it's shared. I don't see that as a logical necessity. I guess it's possible if every, if there's so many more people doing a cultural activity like a Jubilee that, all of them would take it 10% less seriously because there's more people there. But I don't see why that would be the case other than saying it's possible. Uh, But I don't see anything causal. I don't see a causal connection between more people engaged in a 
more traditionally exclusive cultural practice and it being less vital. Like, I just think people, potentially those kind of arguments are made by people who stand to lose some of their control or power of those practices. Yeah, Yeah, that is an argument to be made. But I do do have some sympathy for the argument that, well, for example, if you're a minority group in a country and you want to maintain that culture and then suddenly everyone becomes interested in your culture and and they're all coming and 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 there's less people that are practicing it because let's say they believe it if it's a religion or it has meaning to them on a deeper level and everyone's doing it the larger majority culture can kind of consume the smaller culture I, I mean at least i think that would definitely be the fear that one would experience in that time i guess so but that just sounds to me like insecurity as yeah. opposed yeah, I to think that's fair. as opposed to like a true belief or faith in the vitality of whatever it is you're doing the culture of hockey is obviously something pretty vital for canada us boys up north and yeah. girls up yeah. north yeah and i actually think one of the coolest things that has happened in hockey in canada in the last i think 15 years 20 years and this might be the coolest thing ever is that there is a massive Indian population in Vancouver, so much so that they have hockey night in Canada and they have a hockey night in Punjabi, where they have commentators who are bringing hockey and the Vancouver Canucks to that demographic of people. And it's just so awesome to see all of the people whose families are who came from India and Pakistan and that part of the world wearing Canucks jerseys and cheering for, well, it used to be the Sedins, but just at no point am I looking at hockey and seeing all these other people who are from traditionally non-hockey loving countries loving the Canucks and thinking, man, this is making hockey worse. Oh, right? for for sure. Like I, I just um, think that that's I think, uh, that actually makes it better. I I just don't like. I guess maybe I just don't have the intuition of why things are better if they're exclusive. Like I just don't. I don't have that, and that's fine. I mean, that can be just a you know a a lack of imagination on my part. But something like the Jubilee that Kyle is going to. Kenny's really interested. He's curious to learn about what they're doing. And why not share that with him? As opposed to... The bottom line for me is that I am philosophically and by temperament a humanist. And for me, that means every cool thing in the world we should try and get to everybody. You have to make choices, right? Like you can't do everything. No, no, no. So, I, I'm not being literal. <laughs> like you can't do everything. Get, but I maybe, think so. I think what are you saying? Give access to everything to everybody. Yeah, like yeah. maybe have I don't know. Have an open jubilee night or something. <laughs> like right. a jubilee town hall I, I, I or what, something. I see what you're saying. I like the the activities. Like I mean, obviously in the show they're just making macaroni pictures and stuff like that. The squirts. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think that inclusion versus exclusion is the pluralistic cosmopolitan way that actually brings so many more awesome things into your life like obviously all the great food we get from all these different places in the world but like music hearing indian music in an indian restaurant is amazing learning about famous authors from you know wherever brazil or different parts of the world these things open me up and I feel like they, they must open others up. And I guess I just don't have any time for 
the devil's advocacy. Right now. <laughs> well, yeah, you cert- certainly don't agree with it, and I understand that. I think, I mean, uh, you're fighting an interesting battle on that one. Uh, it's kind of like our our prime min- our former prime minister Stephen Harper wrote a book called um, Right Now. In it, he talks about the everywheres and the somewheres. Yeah. And the distinction being that there's cosmopolitan people who are interested in everything and don't have really a, a tied down, localized identity necessarily. Mm-hmm. Where and then there's a group of people who do feel very connected to their group, to their to their geography, to all these things. And there's a tension between those two groups of people, and arguably the reason for the rise of populism around right. the world, whether it be in Poland or Hungary or here or in the United States. And so while I agree with your sentiment here, I think I think it's a hard one to understand if you're looking at things from a different perspective. Yeah, I guess so. And so I guess my encourage my encouragement and I think our encouragement always has been doesn't mean you have to lose your identity to bring other people into it, but no. like you said, it will open up your eyes. Yeah, well, like this is it's a total non-zero sum game. Yeah, it's a win-win in a lot of ways. What of Kyle's Jewishness is lost by having Kenny come and hang out with him at Jubilee? Like, I just think that that is, like, it's a rhetorical question to me. It's nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. Yeah. Right? And as we globalize and have people meeting each other from all over the world and getting along, the glue of cultural, of cross-cultural understandings is actually sharing the awesome parts of our cultures with each other. So I think it's, that's why I think it's also not relevant as much anymore. Like you just have to, I just think the world is going to continue getting more and more global. <laughs> Let's hope if it doesn't, then it's going to go more and more tribal. Well, and we, we all I'll, know how that I'll put, ends up. I'll put it to you this way. We can't really afford the deep tribalism of our history because we have apocalyptic weaponry now. <laughs> which we didn't have yes. before. Yeah. And so, you know, anyway. Oh, I, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> the Simpsons did it episode. I love this one because this is South Park at its most self-aware, I think. It's a show that's commenting on a show that influences everything. And that level of self-awareness grants a long leash, I think. For the, So for me personally, the moment I get any whiff of someone being self-aware of what they're saying and doing, I feel a lot less, I guess, anxious about their attitude or something. I like their jokes more. I like, they can get, for me, they can get away with dirtier jokes or more offensive jokes because I'm like, oh, okay. I know that they know what they're doing and they know what this joke will have effect on, like everything about it, right? And I think South Park's ironic self-awareness is a huge goal for presence in the world like knowing what uh, what your effect is on other people and then reconciling yourself to be okay with that or not you know and they they do that so well in the simpsons did it episode <laughs> yeah I, mean, <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say on that well I mean, what do you yeah. think okay what here i'll ask you as a question what do you think about someone's behavior if Uh, you think they're self-aware versus if you think they're not even if they do something you wouldn't do or agree with like does that have any i i I find self-aware people to be so rare Uh, that uh i see i I mean that it's not something i commonly honestly think about but i okay i'll I'll put it this way i'll go with doubt instead of self-awareness if people can express doubt even of their own opinions 
Right. I, I find that very, very attractive. Okay. And I think South Park does that very well. Mm-hmm. Where it says, I mean, it's even questioning itself at the end of, in the, in the beginning uh, episodes where, you know, they're always coming out with some kind of platitudes at the end. But they're not just platitudes. They're, it's actually, it's questioning and it's saying, what have we learned today? It's somewhat like what we're trying to do, uh, teasing out of the story that they've just told some nugget of truth. Yes. Uh, but, but even in their criticisms, while they're pointed and often aggressive, they can be d- doubting of their own criticisms. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I guess maybe that's what you mean by self-awareness. Uh, and if that's what you mean, I completely agree. I think I trust a person who doubts themselves a lot more than I trust the cer- person who's certain. I think certitude is one of the most... Sure. Is, is scary. Yeah, I mean, I think... I, I know what you mean by doubt. I feel a little bit like it might be more like aware of limitations or yeah where okay i see where my knowledge ends and where my ignorance begins and like really being sure of where that line is kind of thing which uh, yeah i think is self-aware and is part of the doubting mentality yes i agree that the doubt or the skeptical mentality even of yourself so this is what i mean this that, that doubting or skeptical mentality if first applied to yourself is what grants the leash to for me to people to extend it to others yeah as well no, exactly and, and maybe not to immediately because i find that people who let's say they're not self-aware mm-hmm. they're 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 so consumed by their own ego and being that they they'll jump on something mm-hmm. that they disagree with yeah and they'll attack it yeah and they'll say well no you're wrong right right and you can't be that way and actually i think this this segue is really well into my favorite thing about south park which is that it forces people to think about the things they cherish and value yeah and say is this true yeah and and it, it kind of it twists it and it shows you it ridicules yeah. in order to i mean i think it, it can ridicule things that people believe and actually strengthen their belief but yeah. but it could also point out to someone that they aren't self-aware cuz suddenly they will immediately become aggressive because something that is so important to them is being attacked. And I think that's the opposite of self-awareness. Right. Yeah. yeah, And I mean, (laughs) South Park will say something about any given contingent in society that probably if you're a devotee of that contingent, like Catholicism or Scientology or Islam or KFC (laughs) or whatever other, like Disney, uh, Cream Fresh, Disney, marijuana farms, whatever, right? (laughs) You probably will have South Park say things to you that are offensive about your sacred cow that probably no one in your real life will say to you about it. So it might be the starkest moment where you have to think about it. Yeah, that's true. That's really interesting. And actually, it goes back to something you said earlier, but doesn't it expose a level of insecurity? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if something like South Park can make you feel anger at this thing that you've... because yeah. It, I mean, put your guard up. Yeah. You know? Who is South Park? Like, yeah. if you like, let's say you're you're a Catholic and you believe that you know there's an omniscient, omnipresent God, who cares about these okay. guys? Okay. I have to give it as a side now because the Catholic episode of South Park is one of the greatest ever. Oh, and it's, oh, I think it's they, hilarious when yeah. they. I think it's Father Maxi, the South Park priest, is gathered at the Vatican to talk about all of the molestation charges happening, and all of the priests at the Vatican admit that 
they are molesting children and all they're concerned about is how to make sure the public doesn't find out about it. Where Maxie's like, well, maybe we should just not molest the kids. And all the, and all the other priests just start laughing at him and thinking he's crazy. And then they have these alien Catholics called the Gilgamex. And the lead guy's like, the Gilgamex vagina has 10 razor sharp teeth and will bite your dick. How are we supposed to have sex with that? And then Father Maxie's like, well, maybe for a minute we can forget about the Gilgamax. <laughs> and then the Gilgamax, forget about the Gilgamax. <laughs> anyway, sorry, all of that no, no. is neither here nor there. But, but if you're like, a, okay, so like if you're the kind of Catholic. That who, might offend a Catholic, well, potentially. Well, yes, interestingly though, why? Right? Why well, does it offend them? What does that say about their psychology? Like why Why do yeah, they like any, care? Any given person who's Catholic. Yes, or yeah. any given person about, about anything. anything that yeah. South Park makes fun that, of. That specific example with Father Maxi in the Vatican talking about child molestation is a perfect example of something that could offend a Catholic. <laughs> oh, oh, I completely agree. I think it would offend many Catholics. Yes. But my question is, why? Yes. I think it's a question that any Catholic listening to this episode, but any uh, anyone should ask when they're offended by something. Well, why am I offended by it? Mm-hmm. What attachment do I have that I feel is being violated because another person has a different opinion? Yeah. Or or because another person's prodding me. Yeah. Which is really what South Park's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So so I think... But um, again, like with that specific example with the Catholic uh, episode, they are prodding, but they're not working with something that isn't kind of true well that's what i'm right that, that's what i'm getting at yeah, the, okay. the beauty of south park is that it actually makes ridicules mm-hmm. but it doesn't ridicule like oh you know all catholics are stupid and i've never met a smart catholic that's yeah. a dumb criticism yeah or religion is just idiocy and i can't believe that anyone believes it well right? i mean ironically in that episode father maxi is an extremely smart and ethical catholic <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> but what it does is it makes you look at the thing that you love and realize your attachments are somewhat ridiculous sometimes. Mm-hmm. And why are you so attached? And what does that mean? Which which just goes back to the identity thing that we were talking about earlier. Uh, yeah, I guess like to to tie it all back to self awareness and th- self awareness granting you the leash to go out and be in the world and maybe start even criticizing other things in the world like South Park does. Is that I would just turn the little what would you even call it? It's not quite a parable, but the thing that Jesus says, if you start working on the log in your own eye, yeah, start telling your neighbor about the specks in theirs kind of thing. Yeah, but you better get rid of your log first in well, a sense, or, or at least know it's there. Know it's there and be working on it. Yeah. And then that's what gives you the license to go out and put that out into the world as like, well. That is a really good description of self-awareness. I like that. Because <laughs> I... I've heard the word lots and I've thought about it lots, but that's a real, yeah, but a, really a clear definition. I think that's a really good one. Because it's not like you want other people to live with specks in their eyes, too. No. And presumably they wouldn't either. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, one other thing from the Simpsons Did It episode, though, there's a quote. I'm pretty sure it's Stan or Kyle at the end, because this is the episode where Butters is just losing his mind as Professor Chaos trying to come up with a diabolical plan to take over South Park with some crafty and absurd machinery and every single one he's thought of it's actually already happened on the simpsons so then there's the classic general disarray going simpsons did it simpsons did it and at the end of the episode every like it kind of 
gives the Simpsons aesthetic to everything, right? Like uh, every uh, the the South Park animation turns into a, like a not exact replica of the Simpsons animation, but like close enough where you're like, okay, they're now now Butters is really losing his mind, kind of thing. And I and Stan or Kyle, I can't remember, says, "Don't worry about it, Butters. Simpsons have been on the air for like ever. They've done everything. Every idea has been done." And it reminded me of this jim jarmusch quote i remember from high school is he said something along the lines of don't try to be original try to be authentic bring your own authenticity whatever your project is because so many ideas have already been done that you might not even know (laughs) that you're repeating an idea but if you do it with authenticity that's what people will care about and that's what butters couldn't learn (laughs) i guess in this episode was that even if he did something the simpsons already done whatever the Simpsons probably have ripped it off from other things too, right? Like all these ideas have already been done. Just do your own thing with authenticity. And that's actually what you have to be hoping for because that's what resonates. I actually think about this concept, like is there originality, right? (laughs) It's It's a really important question, I think. And one of the, and you know, everyone's always like, oh, you know, this particular author is taken from these other authors. They're kind of derivative. It's all derivative. And I've always thought that creation like the act of creation is taking things that already exist and bringing them together mm-hmm. and creating something new. Yeah. Uh, and th- it's true. The Simpson has done, I mean, there's that old quote, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. Yes. So that, that's as old as, you know, human knowledge almost. And yet we're, we're, we are creating new things. We do have, but they're really just the combination of old things. And I, I've always thought, how cool is it that we can take the ideas of different people or great minds or, or not so great minds and put them together and look at them differently and understand the world differently? I, I, I think that's the beauty of creation, personally. Yeah. No, that's nice. I like that. Melding things that seem separate and maybe even separating things that seem similar. Well, you can't create something out of nothing, right? You, you need materials. <laughs> yeah. To, to make anything. Well, interestingly, just as a, a point in history about this, apparently I read in one of Stephen Pinker's books, I can't remember which, but that the great British philosopher John Stuart Mill, one of the things he wrote about that he was really worried and scared of is that we would run out of new songs because there's only a certain amount of notes in music and there's only a certain amount of chords eventually all of the permutations and combinations of those notes would be made and then there'd be no way to make any new music. We'd be stuck. Like there would be a finite amount of new songs that could be made. (laughs) That is actually kind of a terrifying thought. Yeah, it is a terrifying thought, right? And what Pinker points out is that you can have repeating notes or repeating chords, but there's just so many different ways to make those sound and feel that, I mean, I, I, I mean, there's that, great video on youtube by the band axis of awesome where they just do 40 hit songs with four chords kind of thing they just play the same four chords over and over play all these different hits and i mean i play guitar i know a lot of songs that are just g d c you know (laughs) but yeah slightly different patterns slightly different strumming style slightly different timing of chord changes and all of those songs have their own unique feel and flavor based on how the artist has authentically presented them into the world, if that makes sense. And so, I guess, rest easy, I mean, John it's, Stuart it's, Mill. <laughs> yeah, you, using the, the building blocks, but doing it differently. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to 
hate on originality other than it's kind of hard to exactly say what that is. I mean, I think like the first time I saw Memento, for example, that movie, I was like, this is a completely original movie. This idea I've never seen before. But I've seen a lot of movies where, okay, I know these beats. I know these tropes. I know this style, act one, act two, act three, main character, love interest. It goes good. They have a fight, problem. Oh, no, someone wasn't quite honest all the way through. Uh, but then the deeper thing happens. The the protagonist actually admits to the thing he should have admitted right at the first. She likes him again. Oh, it's resolved. End of movie kind of thing. And it's but it's like there are some ways where they do that really authentically. And where you're like, oh yeah, I don't care if the beats are the same because this is still a nice like I can tell that the way that they did this story or this piece of art, they like they just they had their own individual feeling to well, it. Well it's like Star Wars. Yeah. Is a great example. Uh, yeah. Like it is a lot of really ancient stories packed together. Like it's hard to say there's anything orig- original about it. And yet it's so original that everyone loves it and has like a personal attachment yeah. to it. And, and it is original. No one would say there's something like Star Wars. Maybe Spaceballs, <laughs> but that was on purpose. <laughs> yes, but you know what I mean. Like no one could say, "Oh, that that's a that's exactly like Star Wars." Like Star mm-hmm. Wars is unique and yet built on the foundations of very literally a uh, hero with a thousand faces. Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> every culture kind of thing. So anyway, I just love that they have that meditation in the Simpsons episode because, and I mean, I've externally to the show, I've heard Matt and Trey talk about their veneration for simpsons and what a great show it is and i just i also just like the idea externally to any like meditation on south park that of a younger artist or like a newer artist i guess paying homage to an older one who's influenced them and it's kind of like a thank you almost and i like that i like gratitude shown i like when new musicians say what old musicians really influenced them and that kind of thing. And there's a humility to that too. There's a yeah. and there's a again a placing of yourself within a history and a context, which mm-hmm. is very enjoyable for people who are interested in things. Like we were just talking about cultures earlier, but there's cultures around these things as well. There you can really immerse yourself in the a comedy sitcom shows, yeah. right? And or you can really immerse yourself in the in the history of Western literature, or you mm-hmm. can really situate yourself in you know the stand up comedy world. But they all have stories. Yeah, you right? can tell Dickens read a lot of Shakespeare. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or you can tell that Joe Rogan's really into like some of his mentors yeah. in stand up comedy, mm-hmm. and they all have stories. And they're like, remember that thing that happened? And it's kind of like an inside information, but it's only inside information because the people who really care about that have been telling these stories for a while. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I guess on that note, on a on a personal little version of this, there's a lot of influences to even start this podcast, but the strongest one is a podcast called Very Bad Wizards. So if any of you aren't subscribed to that one or aren't currently listening to it, it's a podcast where a philosopher and a psychologist discuss you discuss issues in science and ethics. Really interesting, thoughtful things, but they're really funny guys. And every now and again, they talk about a movie or a mostly movies. I don't know if they they've done a few books, but it was like, man, when I first started hearing them do that, I was like, oh, I want to do a story every episode kind of thing. I want to do the, what they do sometimes, all the time, and. Is it a ripoff? I hope not. 
it's meant as an, I guess, part homage, part, oh, I think I can do that too, kind of thing. And so, I mean, even <laughs> the title of this podcast, Really True Fiction, is based on the cadence sound of their syllables, Very Bad Wizards, kind of thing. Right. And is it original? I mean, maybe that wouldn't be the best adjective, but I'm, I'm do- we're doing our best to be authentic with it and just keep growing as opposed to and 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 like i'm just grateful for all of the kind of style that those two guys have given for us yeah you know yeah and I, and I think there's nothing wrong with that like <laughs> yeah i mean when you love you something learn. yeah when you love something you often imitate it all right christ fest oh. <laughs> the commercialization of christianity oh man this and is the a distasteful good the distastefulness of the mega churches. Oh. So before you go down, like I grew up in a Christian house as well as you. And I remember going to this conference when I was a teenager. So probably like age 14 to 17. I remember going to this conference in Kelowna, BC called Avalanche at this massive vineyard. And I'm from a small town in BC. So our churches were small. We didn't, there were no mega churches in the town I grew up in. That's for sure. And so I remember going to this Kelowna Vineyard where like they could, you could fit like almost a thousand people in this building. And I think they had like three different shops. <laughs> they had like a bookstore, a gift store and another one. And it was just multi-purpose. And it was my first like personal exposure to something even approaching a mega church. And I don't even know if there's mega churches in Canada like there are in the States. Well, I'd say there's probably, I'd say there's, pro- yeah, but I mean, it doesn't get to the, like the 10,000 mark, but no. I think like there are churches even here. Well, then there's a show on Crave and HBO right now called The Righteous Gemstones, Danny McBride's new show, where they are preachers in a mega church in South Carolina. And of course their whole, the whole shtick of the show is how, when they're not at the pulpit, they're living <laughs> exorbitantly opulent lives in their mansions <laughs> yeah i think there's there's <laughs> and not exactly being good christians <laughs> if you know what i mean <laughs> there's a lot a lot to be said on that i mean we could go on for a whole episode about that but um yeah what's your synopsis idea on mega churches like what like the i think it's just because here's the thing growing up i met so many people who were authentic in their religion and their belief and i really respected these people and I just don't get that same authenticity sense from mega churches. I don't know. Call me crazy. No, I think <laughs> I think you're utterly right. Uh, more, more really right. I think the attraction of a mega church uh, is a as a bunch of things, and I'll, I'm going to go from like the really basic uh, younger person reason for an attraction to it to the broader, I think, sociological reason that someone's attracted to it. So the first thing I would say is, I mean, like, let's say you're a young teenage person and you're going to a church of the size that we went to growing up, yeah, uh, which I'd say was in the 50 to 100 range. It's not going to be a lot of people your age. It's, it's like living in a small village. <laughs> and, you know, as a young person, you're pretty interested in people your age. You, you Turns know, out. Generally in a, in a more romantic sense. Mm. <laughs> and if there's nobody around. I, still ha- I can't wait to learn what that's like. <laughs> One day. <laughs> one day, one day, Luke. <laughs> you'll you'll find you'll find her. Guys, I'll be a man one day. <laughs> Even I remember this growing up. It's like, well, you have to kind of go out in, into other churches, and when the the bigger the church, the the higher the odds. Uh, so I think that's definitely one thing. And then parents of children or parents of teenagers want to go where their kids want to go, and and so these are natural tendencies that just evolve out of basic human biology. But bigger than that, consumerism has made it so that uh, we're demanding things from our experiences 
the, we're demanding more polish, we're demanding more entertainment, and we're demanding things to be more interesting. I think you were brought this up actually earlier today. Even social media and things like that have got us to a point where long, thoughtful, and attentive uh, experiences are are lacking. So like, it's easier to find a pastor who can get up in front of a whole bunch of people and entertain them because he's a really good speaker than maybe have a pastor who's really thoughtful and engaging and digs into um, the meat, let's say, of a, of a sermon. But it could take years for them to get through, like, through to to really uh, educate, let's say, the the on the truths that they're trying to convey. Whereas, almost always, when you watch these mega churches, it's entertainment. They're not digging into, like you said, the authentic faith necessarily. They're they're telling people kind of what they want to hear. Yeah, and the and and it gets worse. Like the people you're describing who are living these—they're op- ramping them up. Yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. go. Well, like they're they're creating emotions. Yeah, right there, and that and that is something that happens more easily in larger groups. Yeah, and I mean there is the threat of that. I think in any pastor or any preacher, like I think you can have that overly emotive style with a small group still oh for sure for sure but what i mean more but it's is, like ne- it's like a necessary part of the job like like with <laughs> anything there's people for who are better church. better at things and uh the better you get at something the more recognition you want for it and so like if you're a really good preacher let's say in the sense that people are entertained by you that they keep coming back that they want to hear more then you're going to attract a bigger crowd and people are going to follow you more let's say but I think the interesting thing about the megachurch is the part that I really hate is this idea that God is going to make you wealthy. The prosperity gospel. I think it's one of the most sinister right. things that's ever come into Western Thus justifying culture. the pastor's wealth. Well, yeah, ju- saying, <laughs> well, I'm really holy, so look at all my money. But But you know what? If you get really holy... God's just going to bless you. He's going to give you whatever you need. Not just what you need, what you want. There, yeah, there also seems something really specifically or uniquely American about that, too, well, though. Well, I think that, like I think America, who is consumed with the American dream, that is yeah. that wants a better life, like that's an easy sale, right? Because, I mean, at its fundamental level, it's freedom to pursue... I mean, the pursuit of happiness. Yes. It's freedom to pursue opulence. It's mm-hmm. freedom to... Pr- it's like, you're free to go for it. Yeah. And how how awesome is it is if, you know, you're you're living in this culture... Where- uh, never mind that this money generally comes from non-taxable donations. Yes. That's a whole other... <laughs> never whole mind that thing. detail, I suppose. Well, like Stephen Colbert did a, re- a couple of really good things on this. He actually started his own megachurch mm. uh, through the Colbert... Sh- <laughs> through the show. Really? Yeah. And, oh, man. And he was getting people to send him donations. And it was like... It was ridiculous. And he was making ridiculous promises on TV. He was going after televangelists even more than megachurches. Right. right. Oh, this could be apocryphal. But didn't um, even if it is apocryphal, it seems appropriate. Didn't L. Ron Hubbard say something like, "The best way to make money is to start a religion"? Oh yeah, <laughs> I, it wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> but promising people things that you don't actually have to give them, yeah, but keeping telling them that they'll get them if they're good enough—it's <laughs> one of the oldest tricks in the book. Like <laughs> bringing it back to South Park, that reminds me of um, the Guitar Hero episode. Uh, where Stan buys heroin hero. 
<laughs> you're always chasing the dragon and you're trying to inject your arm. Oh. Come on, you'll catch me. You'll get me. Yeah. Come on. Oh, you almost got me that time. Oh, come on. I almost got the dragon, Dad. I almost got the dragon. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're on the same page about that. I really love, I remember as a teenager, especially really loving the Go God Go episodes because they came out, I think it was season 10. And so by season 10, I would have been about 18 or 19. This was a time in my life where I was really, not a crisis of faith, but it was, it, I'll put it to you this way. It was the beginning of the end of faith for me. And I loved how South Park was so thoughtful in this kind of dismantling of it. I guess it would have been about 2006 because Richard Dawkins is in this episode. He uh, And they make a lot of fun of Richard Dawkins, too. <laughs> yes, they sure do. <laughs> See, this is what I love about South Park. There, okay, you know. so the context <laughs> is Mrs. Garrison has recently had a sex change operation. And so used to be Mr. Garrison, now is Mrs. Garrison. And she is tasked with teaching the boys or the kids in the class the evolution component and but, she, but she doesn't believe in evolution she doesn't believe in evolution at all so like honestly in the show that's made me laugh more than any others maybe the one little part of south park that is funnier than any other is mrs garrison's explanation of how evolution works <laughs> it's like well this fish fucked this other fish frog and they came into a monkey and then the monkey fucked the other fish frog and that came you and now I'm obviously not. It's like she's just so mad that she has to be doing this. And, and then in the background, Stan just says, you realize evolution has been pretty much proven, right? And so the episode starts with like an awareness of science. And so this was right when the God Delusion came out, the book. And so the show gets Richard Dawkins to come in and actually explain evolution to the kids. Mrs. Garrison falls in love with him. He falls in love with Mrs. Garrison. As Cartman travels into the future, 500 years later, there's all these there's these three separate factions of atheists because atheism is taken over because Mrs. Garrison convinced Richard Dawkins to actually take over the world by force to, <laughs> to convert everybody to atheism. The joke being all these three different atheist groups are at war with each other because who's the most logical kind of thing thus meditating on the psychological mechanism that's inherent to people, not a religion, that we can find any reason to disagree and fight with each other. <laughs> the fact that religion has been the most prevalent in history doesn't mean it's the only one that would uh, I think <laughs> stand we, in for that seen, placeholder. We've right? seen evidence of that in the 20th century. Of course, yeah, right? So. Of course. But then this is another great South Parkism in this episode. Well, Dad, I want to learn everything. And then, no, you don't. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's like parents defending their own beliefs from the outside world. I think that's really damaging to children. Oof. Well, okay. That now this is an interesting question because I think not giving children anything to have. Yes. No, because okay, when you're a kid, you need explanations of reality. You can't just be wandering around some vessel. What would be an example of a, something you would need an explanation of that the truth is best as people know it? couldn't be the right answer i think as a child just telling them hey uh one day you're gonna die and then nothing could be very terrifying well maybe, I'm, I'm not saying you should you should teach them oh, well maybe maybe if you lead with that well right right what but if I, a kid says oh i mean this could happen if a grandparent passes on her guess but what if a kid says something like what happened to grandma 
I mean, it depends on the age. I mean, I, I don't even think like a three-year-old probably wouldn't even ask that or like be able to have an attention span to listen to you. But I don't know. I mean, maybe a three-year-old, but I think like a, maybe a six-year-old could. And right. you could say, well, I, I don't know. Like, I guess I would say if that happened to me when I have kids, I would take my kid and say, hey, look, what happens is humans die. Some like they don't live forever. And grandma had a long life and she did a lot of good and uh, she had, you know, a good old age and that's good and that's going to happen and that happens to everybody and that's just actually part of life. Right, but I mean, I, I know from conversations with friends who have kids that can awesome, often send them into like a complete spiral where they're like, I don't want to die. I don't want my, my parents to die. Like, And you're not going to be able to, well, that's okay. You just need to understand this in a, on a rational level. Now, I'm not saying that religion is the answer. What I'm saying is I think... And I don't have kids, so this is speculation and observation. I think kids, I do know this, kids need order. I'll give an example, nap time. If they don't get their nap time or, the, or, or they're, they're t- taken off their schedule and just let to roam free in chaos, they become miserable and unhappy. They need structure. Of course. Right? And not just in their uh, physical world and their physical actions, but in their mental world actions like this is right this is wrong this is what that's your job as a parent to teach these things mm-hmm. um and so i think parents get into that mode because that's how you raise a kid mm-hmm. this is right this is wrong this is what you do this is what you don't do they, they these these people don't know anything they're just they're you know little blobs of, of they're sponges right so i think what's hard for parents is they're naturally going to have beliefs just like you do just like i do and they're going to be passing those on because that's just the nature of it as it's going. Like, that's what they've been doing. And then, then kids reach an age, and it's like they start not necessarily agreeing you on it. Like, here's a good example. If you were raising a child and suddenly they became a, you know, Bible-thumping Christian and told you you were, uh, you know, an evil atheist and completely disagree <laughs> with you, that'd be hard for you, I think. Well, I don't think so, actually. I think that that would be – I would just consider that more learning opportunities or – teachable moments both ways in the episode i think like their kids are eight so they're old enough to talk to their parents about things i think and obviously south park puts it all at the edge case where i believe a no you don't you believe b shut up (laughs) oh yeah i don't think that's exactly i I want to affirm i think you're right i'm just thinking (laughs) about raising kids and how that probably makes you well okay i think you're right i think Parents being attached to their children, believing the same things they did, is very damaging. Mm-hmm. I, I would just, I guess I think it more in the way that there is an authenticity to a lot of it, because I know people really believe what they believe, but I think that reality has a way of course correcting eventually for people. And it's just, it's it's more like a scale of how much harder or easier that's going to be for a kid as they get older, based on maybe not lies their parents tell to them, but not exactly truths either. One funny one brought up by Sam Harris in his book Lying is that of Santa Claus, where he has two young kids and he just didn't lie about Santa Claus ever, you know? And so his kids um, knew right away that there wasn't no Santa Claus as soon as they could think about that kind of thing. And lo and behold, their worlds didn't shatter and they (laughs) didn't, and and they didn't uh, have a, psychotic breakdown from the non-santa claus that exists like and in a way that maybe kids who are told santa claus does exist whenever that 
uh, wizard is revealed behind the curtain for what it is, like there's a lot of sadness in a lot of kids. Okay, so you know? so I'll, I'll go on this because because my mother also did not teach me about Santa Claus because she was worried. I was a very black and white child, apparently, um, which I guess isn't really that surprising. But she was worried <laughs> that if she told me that, that I would that I would call her a liar. <laughs> sure, and yeah. she didn't she didn't want to be a liar. But funnily enough, they didn't know really know how to deal with dinosaurs very well mm. in my household. Uh, and so they never really told me about them. So I remember I was at the park one day, and I, there was an, uh, another young lady there that we were playing on the merry-go-round and stuff, and we started discussing uh, Santa Claus, and I told her that Santa Claus wasn't real, <laughs> which is not a very nice thing to do as a child. Well but, done, on, but on top of that, then she was saying, oh, yes, Santa Claus is real, and dinosaurs are real. <laughs> and I said, dinosaurs aren't real. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like I And I went on this long rant about how crazy she was for believing in Santa Claus and dinosaurs. And then she said something to me that shattered my world. She said, they have their bones. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, like, it doesn't get more real than that, right? Yes, and, the uh, uh, <laughs> ever-lurking E word. Yes. Evidence. Yes. <laughs> that can never be... To so underemphasize, I, I often tease my parents about uh, not telling me about that dinosaurs were real. Yes, uh, for whatever reason. Well, I mean, had. I don't want to talk specifically about your parents, but I think in a scenario where it is a little bit uncertain based on a belief system, and I don't know, also suffices. Yeah. I think. I think. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think a, especially from an authority figure who says, I actually don't know the answer to this question, is, okay, sure, maybe you have a small, short-term sacrifice of a child's faith in your omniscience. (laughs) Which should probably be destroyed as quickly as possible to some degree. But what is gained is a long-term trust. Because saying, I don't know about something, is not self-aggrandizing in any way. It's, like, at best, self-neutralizing. And so no one is gonna no one is gonna say I don't know <laughs> to look good. No. I mean m- no. maybe unless they're like operating at a really higher order mental state where they're saying, I know this person wants someone who seems humble. So I'm gonna say I don't know. Right. right like if you're that right. if you're that level of thinking though, I don't know. Like I I, I would be interested like what could a person like that be motivated by, I guess. I wouldn't really like I probably think that, wanting to manipulate another person. Yeah, but then even but then I would be like, well, but why? You know, like on and on until and then maybe it is just till the world burns, like the Joker kind of thing. And then oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that person aside, just the I don't know, I think, is not again, I work with kids. They ask me something I don't know. I don't change the subject. I don't get tangential. I don't talk about an aspect of something they said that I might know a little bit about. If that's not the heart of their question, I just say, I don't know the answer to that question. And I think in the long run, that builds trust. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think um, going back to what you were you were saying about parents and saying things to their children, it reminds me of Calvin and Hobbes, where <laughs> Calvin's dad is telling him these ridiculous stories <laughs> yeah. and, and freaking his son out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I guess that's another option. <laughs> well, I think that like that goes so far in the other direction that it's humor no, again. No, I agree. Right? I agree. It, it's, um, and I, and Calvin's I, not going to live under the illusions of the things his dad says for very long because they are so absurd <laughs> and like almost imme- almost immediately falsifiable. <laughs> yes, yes. So, <laughs> And so then 
I like this just to end the go, God, go thought. Maybe just believing in God makes God exist. And I, I think that's fun to meditate because that actually, it's kind of what Dennett calls belief in belief. It's more about our psychology than about metaphysics, which I actually think psychology is what's actually creating everything. <laughs> right. And right. so I, I actually think that's the fountainhead of things, not something outside of ourselves. But then I, I also think that that makes it really empowering. Oh, and sorry, one last thing about Go, God, Go. I wrote, isms make people war. Ah. <laughs> are, right? you, are you are you yodaing here? Or? Yeah, I guess so. Yoda-ing. <laughs> Yoda-ing. <laughs> uh, Our grandma would like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, just these, you know, abstract concepts that people say are so important and yet are just not real things right like you can't touch taste they're not sense they're not sensible things they're, they live in the abstractions of our minds that help us rationalize evil and so you know all the it was a united atheist united atheist alliance allied atheist league or united atheist league and then allied atheist alliance the yeah. three different groups and i don't remember the names they're but fighting I remember one of them is ism. a bunch of otters <laughs> yeah yeah they're otters and you know it's like no matter what they believe people will find ways to be dicks to each other <laughs> yeah it doesn't matter <laughs> moving into actually probably i guess i would say the part of south the specific south park episodes the most dovetail our actual podcast is the imagination land ones and so i'm going to lead with what is the payoff the end of the third episode because it's a trilogy and how i think this is what i think it's kyle who says this he says just because they are imaginary doesn't mean they aren't real and so our relationship to our stories and our characters is important because it keeps us finding new meanings and importances with each other i mean that could be a tagline for our podcast but also that is a specific content feature of this south these south park episodes which I guess is probably one of the major reasons I and you feel so attached to South Park is their take on imagination and our and I think I mean I think Kyle also has a line in this episode where he says Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter mean way more to people than you or I do and they'll be gone they'll be here long after we're dead so who's to say they're not real in a sense that's meaningful to people you know and he admits this and then says and I'm still not sucking your balls <laughs> <laughs> it was the leprechaun thing. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. Like, I just love that. I guess here's what I learned today moment from Kyle in the imagination line. Cause that's the payoff. Yes. These things are real because they animate our lives. You know, I mean, look at Comic-Con <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. I mean, like how many people go to something like Comic-Con for TV shows and superheroes and things that are, as it were, and I'm saying this in quotations, not real. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> Not real. Right? Well, yeah, I, I think that's a really important point because there becomes an obsession in certain circles of of being attached to like something that physically exists as opposed to mentally exists or is created, you know, like you said, in the imagination. But what a boring life it would be <laughs> if we didn't have imaginations and we didn't have the geniuses that have... I was, I'm reading uh, David Copperfield right now. Yeah. And I'm blown away by how amazing Dickens' imagination is. Mm -hmm. Like, when I read, I, I, often when I'm reading a book, I just am in awe 
that someone could create a world like this. And maybe that says something about my intelligence. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, I love stories. I think stories are the best thing about being alive. I think that's why I love this podcast, because we're, we're talking about what I would argue is the best thing about being alive, is, mm-hmm. is stories that we tell one another. And the reason I think we tell each other stories is because they do have truth in them. Yeah. And nobody wants to hear a story. Like, there are stories out there that don't have, they don't seem to fit. Something feels wrong about them. I think those are the stories that just don't have truth in them. But the ones that we hold on to, the ones that we love the most, the ones that we cherish, the ones that we go to Comic-Con about, or the ones that we, um, you know, read to our children when we have them, those are the ones that matter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like that wonderful, wonderful line from Lord of the Rings, you know. Those are the ones that stuck with you, that really meant something. Yeah. And Sam says that to Frodo. Well, and I mean, if you want to even make it financial, how much money do stories make? I don't. What makes more money than stories in the world? Maybe oil, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right? But like, yeah. if you think about movies, like the Avengers and Star Wars, and then the Harry Potter books, like what? I, I don't know. I, I'm... TV shows. TV shows. Like sports. Sports are entertainment. kind of a story. Yeah. Entertainment. There's uh, uh, showbiz. <laughs> I can't yeah. believe I forgot that word. Showbiz is... Because even the parts of showbiz that aren't specifically works of fiction are still... We're still kind of like... Uh, I mean, there's obviously really dark downsides to this, but we're getting stories of how celebrities live. You know, stories about what they're doing, how they're like. I remember that one show, MTV Cribs, like a story of someone's home. Now, for me, I'm like, I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> but people do. But I mean, again, it's packaged this way. This is why Jordan Peterson talks about how he doesn't think people think in propositions, they think in stories, which is why it's hard to say <laughs> that's why science is hard. <laughs> or logical thinking is hard because it's not our default setting. Our default setting is narrative. And I guess what's so great is that I actually think that there's no rub there. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. There's nothing wrong with that. I actually don't think they're incompatible, though. Like, I, I think it's actually not that hard to be logical and narrative-driven. Yeah, no, I... It just depends on whatever situation you're in. Well, I think a large part of the the logical part is what you were talking about with self-awareness. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not thinking your story is like, is perfect yeah you mentioned this a little bit last time but so i wanted you to elaborate on a little more because it's great and this is a quote the imaginary attacks have been in the works for years (laughs) because terrorism attacks imagination land and this is basically how terrorism works right because i guess that there's both a critique and a sympathy i have with the fear of terrorism um the critique is the same as any other critique where terrorism and especially in a country like canada kills or even injures a minuscule amount of people compared to things like car accidents or cancer or even probably severe weather (laughs) i imagine severe weather especially canada kills way more people than terrorism does so the critique is the amount of like news coverage and i guess place that it holds in a national mind is unwarranted by statistics right and i think that that is important to emphasize the sympathy i have with terrorism is that it at like it's definitely working on our psychology in a way that is intended like this is there's a lot of thought put into how this is going to make people be scared 
because it's pretty obvious how a fear of a blizzard or a really cold winter that could like you could freeze to death or you get caught in a blizzard that's a kind of scary but it's not the same thing as a, a person intending to harm you like that is a different category of things to be worried about because the storm or the grizzly bear or the like the non-human thing that could hurt you is predictable in a say in a way that a human isn't (laughs) you know and once you get over the thing that isn't a human that is trying to hurt you you're probably in the clear which like but with terrorism when are you ever in the clear right well there's an ambiguity I, i think it's the um the shock value of it is the, like you said, the unknown. You never know when it could come. Right. It could be anywhere. It could be hiding around any corner. As a human, when you watch a storm come in, you know the storm's coming. Like, yeah. I don't think I've ever been afraid of freezing to death in my whole life. Sure, yeah. I mean, I've been aware that it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. In the same breath, I don't think I've ever been afraid of a barbecue, but I have burned my hands on a barbecue. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, right. I think. But even like a wild animal. Yeah, like I, I guess I've been afraid the, of a wild animal. Yeah, but I think to be scared of like a coyote or a mountain lion, those are things to genuinely be scared of. But <laughs> I mean, imagine the fear you'd have if mountain lions could strategically plan with each other to terrify you. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, and I, I, <laughs> right, like that's. I, yeah. a, I'm just saying it's this the is shock a, factor. This is a different psychological category of fear. Yeah, because the terrorism is doing. I, I mean. It's the maliciousness of it. Yeah. Right? It's the it's the calculated maliciousness of it, which, you know, people have said that, you know, humans are, are basically evil, but there's a whole, I don't think that's true. There's a whole other level of evil that humans, like you said, are terrified of because it seems unnatural. Mm-hmm. I think the things that are most terrifying to humans are the things that seem unnatural. There's something wrong here. Yeah. And also, like you said, I mean, we have the uh, exception for animals where we can imagine things. And that capacity to imagine can result in fear. I've I've had a very good friend at one point in my life who she was unable to deal with that part of herself. And so she would always be imagining the absolute worst things that could possibly happen. Like if she saw a wild animal, she'd like, am I going to get raised bees now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Sure. And and that, that can short circuit. And mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people call that OCD, right? Yeah. Um, like if you're, if I don't wash my hands and, and count to ten, mm-hmm. the world's gonna end. Yeah. Now that's that's irrational, but that's the human imagination haywired. Yeah. And and basically, all I think terrorism is is a hijacking of that hardwiring imagination that we have mm-hmm. and creating for fear, sure, right? It's it's like a brain hack. Yeah. Terrorism is a total brain hack because. Because it makes you irrational. Yeah, I mean, we're we're left with all of these vestigial impulses and feelings from evolution, and I think it's like the type two versus type one error type thing, where the type one error is you assume the wind in the grass is a tiger, so you run, and it's not. You've made a mistake. There wasn't a tiger when you thought there was. That's type one, which is fine compared to type two error when there is a tiger and you assume there isn't. Yes, and I mean, obviously, right? you're gonna uh, you're gonna want the type one. You error. You want the type one error every time, and so that type of thing has been encoded in our DNA to be anytime anything around you moves, you look or a loud noise. Yeah, like, a loud noise, like being in a restaurant, a glass drops. Mm-hmm. Even if you're yeah. in a really engaging conversation, and it's involuntary. Yeah, you're just gonna look, and then yeah. you look away. So these like 
little aspects of ourselves are put on hyperdrive because imagine you sit in a public place and then all of a sudden, I guess I'm not ashamed to admit this, sometimes I'll be riding on the train and someone gets on who I'm, I'm like, hmm, is this a threat? Like there's people who get on the train sometimes where it's 100%, I'm right away like, okay, this, this person is not a threat, which <laughs> would probably be the best person to be a terrorist, I guess. <laughs> yeah, true, true. But there are, you know, there's people who get on the train who... Maybe they, they seem a little drunk, maybe, or a little out of it, or they're muttering to themselves. Or, or they're carrying a big duffel bag. Or a duffel bag, or they're like significantly bigger than me, so that I would be at a massive disadvantage if any altercation broke out. And I'm just like kind of keeping an extra eye, not because I want to, as much as it's just, an, it feels like an instinct. It's like self-preservation. And so then these are all just, these are all just things that are going on in our brains that evolution has bequeathed to us to keep us alive, basically. And then, so what terrorism does, though, is it takes all those things and then says, hey, this one instance happened here. Look everywhere for this because it's going to be anywhere. It's coming again, and you never know where it will be. So it's the uncertainty. I mean, imagine being in the Serengeti and just, you know there's a tiger, but you don't know where. Yeah. That's kind of what terrorism is like. Well, I think it, I think so. It's, everywhere there's a tiger because you don't know where it is. Well, and I think it's it's very intentional to make it kind of big and and I think the media does a disservice to us all by making it even bigger often because the whole point. I mean, they're serving the terrorist interest in in those moments, right? Which is ingraining it in everyone's mind so that they are afraid and that fear. I guess what I would say about that fear is it gives. I think often the people who are committing these terrorist attacks want to instill a fear in us that's similar to the fear that they feel. And whether that fear is a psychological fear, so it's a fear of uh, of evil. Like, the, the human mind is not nearly as resilient, I think, as people necessarily make it out to be. It can be corrupted and broken. I mean, yeah, I definitely there's a fear possible. I, I mean, look... I'm not a psychologist, and I haven't studied the psychology of terrorists, so I don't know. My total folk psychology about people who commit terrorism is that there there seems to be like a type that is the Columbine shooter type of terrorism who just angry nihilism kind of thing. Now, I don't think I would classify that as fear exactly as much as I would classify it as just hatred right, of right. being. So, but but fear leads to hatred, right? (laughs) Hatred to the dark side. Yeah, there's there's an element of hatred for sure. I think in a lot of terrorist attacks, and also, and this is what scares me the most, ideology behind terrorist attacks. But there's a sense of helplessness. It seems to me in in terrorist acts, they don't feel like they can succeed, or they don't feel like they can. Or they feel oppressed. Like let's take the uh, the Irish for example. What's happening in Ireland? They couldn't beat the UK. The thing about terrorism is it's almost always a smaller and weaker power attacking a larger and uh, <laughs> more power or a more established power. Right? Yeah. Terrorism from the more power to the less powerful is just called good policy. <laughs> That's what I mean. And <laughs> to, to an extent, it's like it's a the only way that we can lash out. Right. And so why why are they doing it? I mean. It's evil, and it's fear-inducing, and there's nothing redeemable about it. But one of the things I think about a lot is what could drive a person to do something like that? And I mm-hmm. and I think 
uh, one of the things I love about, let's say, Jordan Peterson, but uh, everyone who's written about like real tragedy and really thought deeply about it, whether it be you know the Gulag or Auschwitz, like those people who were there and they actually deeply thought about what is allowing these people to do this to me, and then realizing, oh, like oh, there, but for God go I, right? Mm-hmm, like, yeah. And I like to think, okay, so what would drive a person to do something like this? And I, I can't help but think that to some degree it has to be fear. Often the thing that we project into the world is the thing that we have in ourselves. And I understand the logic from the people who are doing this to, to you know, put forward a belief system. Like when, what was Bin Laden trying to do with 9-11? He was trying to strike terror in the hearts of Americans, but he was mm-hmm. also trying to you know, further his radical agenda. Right. So that's different. He's doing that for ideological reasons. Yeah. But the guy who's doing it on the ground, like what would drive him to be like, this is what I need to do? And Well, this is the controversy about this specific type of terrorism, but I agree with Sam Harris <laughs> of why jihadists do terrorism is that it's a belief in martyrdom and uh, paradise and all that kind of stuff. I think that kind of sounds hokey to someone maybe who I think I have an advantage here of having been raised in a religious tradition. I know people who really believe what they say they believe. And so I have a of, of a kind of like cognitive empathy for people in other religions who claim to really believe what they say they believe. But that's a specific type of terrorism as opposed to what would make a person do something so horrible to others for what is what doesn't seem like any other greater purpose, right? Like what are mass shootings for kind of thing? Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe maybe it's just too nuanced. Maybe every situation is different and therefore we can't. For example, I mean, I'd be interested to talk to a psychologist who studied this kind of thing. I think it'd be really informative to learn what they thought about it. I think fear is definitely a major component. It would it makes sense. Yeah, be- <laughs> Yoda is Yoda kind of knows what he's talking he's pretty, about. Pretty wise, you know. He, he yeah. has lived for nine hundred years. So. Yeah. So I think you're right there. And just a little bow on the imagination land too. From what we started at the beginning, the headquarters of the good guys in imagination land is Castle Sunshine, and there's the nine great people, or eight, eight or nine. And there's Aslan, Luke Skywalker, Popeye, Zeus, Morpheus, the Tooth Fairy, Jesus, Wonder Woman, and Gandalf. I don't know why he's, Popeye got in there. Like <laughs> he's, you know, he's not nearly as legendary. As I guess write a strongly ones. worded letter to Matt and Trey. I'm, I'm going to. I'm just gonna be like you. Uh, you're making fun of the nine. <laughs> the day is not lost if people, and in this case, Butters can still imagine. And this is such a hopeful thing to leave people with in terms of continuing living with meaning. And that was the whole point of the Imagination Land trilogy. Was, hey people can still imagine and it makes awesome things and i mean one of the greatest things about the imagination land trilogy is all of the characters that we see in it like you see the ninja turtles you see nintendo characters you see all the villains all the bad guys all the bad imagination things come too and like for strawberry shortcake was in it you know and for like a nerd like me it was just a joy to see all those the smurfs you know you name it they were there kind of thing the woodland creatures (laughs) yeah we'll get to them in a second (laughs) moving on to the coon there's a lot of tropes the plays on the tropes of superheroes disappearing and it reminds me of how good a movie feels that doesn't rely on tropes it's hard to do now but (laughs) it's such an irreverent take on superheroes and so the big main social commentary 
I think, happening in this is represented in the superhero, or <laughs> Captain Hindsight. So Captain Hindsight is the kind of, like all the boys are their own superheroes. So, you know, Eric Cartman is the coon. And then there's like, there's the human kite, there's Toolshed. Uh, my favorite, Mintberry Crunch, who, of course, hilariously ends up being the only one with actual superpowers from a different country. And it's him who kills Cthulhu in the end, or stops Cthulhu. <laughs> anyway, everyone is a Captain Hindsight, from toxic spills to unjust wars. And so Captain Hindsight is the hero for the unaccountable cynic. And Captain <laughs> Hines and Captain Hindsight, like, look, no skin in the game, just like totally observing and analyzing. And I think that's bullshit, (laughs) you know? Like, if you're not a part of what you're talking about in some way, and I don't mean, like, people whose jobs it is to analyze. Like, I love listening to hockey analysts. They're interesting. But it's more like the, you should have done this. Well, I mean, Captain Hindsight's three sidekicks are called shoulda, woulda, coulda. (laughs) And they look like chickens. And it's an ode to basic human intelligence. So here's here's like the more deeper thing I thought about this. So like anyone can be a Captain Hindsight, right? Like it can happen, it, it happens to me. It, it can be anyone. But one of the things that I have noticed about being a person is that it's really hard to remember a mental state before you found out something that you now know. Because when you know something, it, because that's part of your life now, it's really hard to remember what it was like to not know that thing and be operating without that knowledge. It can be something as simple as you come home and you get a piece of mail that says you owe a certain amount of money or you're getting a certain amount of money or like there's a bi- there's a big piece of news in your mail or like someone has left you a message and 10 minutes before you didn't know anything about this and yet now it's like totally saturating your thoughts and it's like kind of more important than anything like it's taken precedence there's a part of you that can very easily as time goes by be like man i should have been thinking about that the whole time it takes over your consciousness or your attention or your focus it can be anything and then you're like man i should have been thinking about that the whole time but that's a stupid thing to say because how can you think about something you don't think about, <laughs> right? Like well, yeah, you're yeah. not, you're not, it, that's kind of the hindsight bias, I guess. That's a cognitive bias called the hindsight bias is part of that. And so what's interesting to me philosophically is that I think that's actually the total opposite of Prometheus. So Prometheus literally means foresight. <laughs> it's, it's a direct opposite of hindsight, being able to anticipate things as they come. Now, not every single detail, like what I was just referencing, but the joke of Captain Hindsight in South Park is that the things that he's noticing, he's only noticing after they've become a problem, not before. <laughs> right. Which the point of hindsight is to become Prometheus for things in the future. Yeah. yeah. Right. If you're not learning from your mistakes <laughs> and you're bound to repeat them kind yeah. of idea. Yeah. And like the, the only purpose of hindsight is to make sure that, well, it's that old saying, it's not a defeat if you learn from it, right? Yeah. But what does it mean to learn from something? It's like you said, that's the Prometheus idea. Mm-hmm. And, and is getting that yeah. fire. Once you, once you give humans fire, mm-hmm. there's no going back. Yeah. You, you, can't, uh, you can't have hindsight on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as you know, Prometheus is my favorite Greek story, hero, yeah. Greek hero, myth kind of thing, because it it's um, what fire can do for people. But again, just because it means foresight, it's I, I love that this direct opposite of Captain Hindsight is Prometheus. Yeah. Like I think do, do you think that's intentional on their part or I don't know. Or I'd be fun. interested in knowing what they know about Prometheus, but 
I wouldn't be surprised. They're pretty knowledgeable guys. And like, it's just obviously a waste of time to not take it and move it forward as opposed to just because then you're just complaining. (laughs) You know, there's a hilarious little part here where Cthulhu flies with Carmen to the Totoro song. My neighbor Totoro. It's really funny. In the overlogging episode, the people go crazy with no internet, right? Yes. What the hell do we do? (laughs) And it reminded me of our over-reliance on technology, which reminded me again of another Emerson quote. Where he, I mean, he, and he was writing this like in the 1840s, <laughs> where he said, man has become too relied on technology. He's gained the carriage at the expense of being able to use his own feet. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. And I like that. I think I like, actually, I just, A, it's hilarious because it's from almost 200 years ago now. <laughs> Someone complaining about how technology is making people lazy and stupid. Well, we don't walk hardly anywhere 200 anymore. 200 <laughs> years ago, right? <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting how. So, so I actually have a, th- a thought on this. That I'd be really interested in, in your thoughts on. Okay. But um, I was reading a study that says we're we're our our brains are actually changing. Okay. We're no longer remembering things like we used to. We don't we don't have the same memory capacity. Our brains are transforming to remember where to find things. So instead of remembering the thing itself, you remember, say it's on your phone you remember where to look for it. And I even had a circumstance today where someone said to me, he was holding his phone, he said, this thing has has destroyed my short-term memory. I used to have a really good memory. <laughs> and and now he's like, now I don't even remember things that I said yesterday. Right? Yeah. It's just like, because it's all there. And what, what does he remember? He searches his email or he searches his text or he searches his messages. And a friend and I were talking about this, just how our brains are rewiring based on technology. And like, there's lots of scientific evidence for this rewiring mm-hmm. because where our brains are, we are malleable, right? Mm-hmm. They can, they, they transform to our environment and, yeah. and, and our it, environments shape our behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And technology is a huge part of our environment now. Well, so the question I wanted to ask you, it's kind of a hypothetical, but I think, are we already cyborgs? <laughs> I mean, like anything, there's no clear line. Like, what would demarcate? Is it if you want to just say no? The hardware has to be physically fused to your body. Then no, but functionally, probably. <laughs> I think functionally, there's there's conceptual overlaps between cyborgs and the way people operate now. Because I mean, and this is so crazy to me, because it's in my living memory of a world before the internet. Yes. Do you know I what know. I mean? Mine like and mine 20, as well. 25, let's say, let's say, we'll put it, I don't remember what year Windows 3.1 came out. So let's say 1990, okay? Let's give ourselves a lot of time. So 29 years ago, you know, I was three. I don't remember this exactly, but there was essentially no internet. And yet there was still, you know, the world's most thriving economies did just fine. Everyone knew how to do things. People made People money. People knew how to meet one another yeah. for things. Like. And so, like, within my lifetime, the world economy functioned without an internet and at a very high level in a lot of places. And yet, a mere 29 years later, if the internet went down, the economy would crash. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, no one would know what to do. Yeah, how would you know where to meet people? <laughs> yeah, and so, <laughs> like, everyone older than me in my living memory, this is what's crazy. Like, these kind of changes you'd be hard-pressed to find maybe 10 people around in your country who remembered the massive previous technological advancement, maybe. And now it's everybody. (laughs) Now everybody is still alive 
for a technological advancement that make a previous era of our own lives unrecognizable. Like <laughs> that that is what really fucks with my head. And like so when I was 11, we got our first like real computer. We had a computer before, but it was MS-DOS. It wasn't Windows. So in in 98 when I was 11, we got a new computer Windows 98, four gigs of memory, <laughs> which was huge for that time. So it w- That's a lot of and, floppy and, disks. And we didn't have the internet until I was 11. So basically, I remember before the internet, which makes me sound like a dinosaur, but it's not. Like, that That was only 21 years ago. <laughs> and yet, almost our whole civilization would crumble without it. Oh, yeah. In, in, so, in ways that are... Un- so, like, I think this is what Emerson is talking about. This is what is being satirized in South Park is that so for me here's here's an antidote here's my antidote this is the one little thing i try to do to be disconnected di- not even well to be autonomous as best as i can is that i don't use gps i still look at a map now granted it's a google map so i still look at it on a computer or a phone but i look at a map I look where I'm going, I look at the roads, and then I remember how to get there from the map that I have. Now, if I get lost, I can check my map again, again, because my phone. As I'm explaining this, this doesn't sound impressive at all, (laughs) but it is still one level more difficult than GPS straight to a place, right? So when the the apocalypse happens, I'll have the niche (laughs) skill of navigation, (laughs) which could be useful. (laughs) But yeah, no, for your question, are we cyborgs? I mean, that's a fun little... I just think like party game to talk about what that is, but I think conceptually, there's a very strong case to be made that yes, we are we are like early stage cyborgs, and it's not crazy to me to think that in our lifetimes, because I have already seen crazy technological advances in my own life. Fifty years from now, there could just be chips they put on your brain. Why well, not? <laughs> oh, I don't. Yeah, that's already happening. But uh, the reason I bring it up also is so we have this scene in the logging in the overlogging one where uh, Dan's sister Shelley is in love with this guy on the internet, and yeah. I had this really messed up experience recently where I was talking to a girl. Uh, like we were just at an event, and we were at a wedding, mm. and we we're. I was like, "How did you guys meet?" And they're like, "Oh, online." And and then and then this was the phrase, "Like everyone these days." <laughs> and I was like. We yeah. must be cyborgs. Like, that's how we're meeting our partners. Like, yeah, exactly. And, and, I mean, I know that doesn't sound shocking until you think about it. Mm-hmm. Until you think about the fact that not long ago, probably all that our didn't parents exist. didn't meet online. Yeah. Like, well, some of you, your parents hope maybe did, but... A good chunk of the people I know met their significant other on Tinder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Tinder didn't exist, what, six years six ago? Years, seven, seven years, years ago. ago. It, Tinder was not really a thing. Yeah. Like... I mean, people who met on Tinder were weird, and it was like a hookup app. Now it's like where you meet your partner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, the world so is I, interesting. So I just think it's funny how far things have progressed since that South Park episode where it's emails and it's weird, and she's like kind of – they're making fun of her yeah. for, for having this love Well, and the, the joke internet. being she doesn't want to talk in real life with the boy. <laughs> yeah. They only want to email yeah. each other. That's where they're yeah. most comfortable. And when they're in real life together, they're so awkward and don't talk. And but then they keep so, emailing after they get yeah, apart yeah, yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's funny. Anyway, like I want to move on to some of the things that are specifically humor based about South Park and the way that they use humor. But I just think like with the with the way that they use social commentary in South Park, they they make it obvious but not stupid. 
I guess for lack of a better term, the lessons of South Park are impossible to miss, but also not just for dummies. But they're nuanced. Yeah. And I like that. Layers, and I like layers of meaning. Yeah. Would you, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And and uh this is why Stan and Kyle are so important to the show. Is that they we, yeah, we discussed yeah. in the last episode. Okay, so here here's some funny things. In the Jubilee episode, they kick out the Chinese kid. <laughs> there's a Chinese kid at the Jubilee, and they're just like, get out of here. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is so great. In that episode, too, there's an anti-Semitic elder. <laughs> so one of the elders at the Jubilee is anti... He, he's an anti-Semitic Jewish elder, <laughs> and he calls on... I can't remember how it's pronounced. Haman or Haman? Haman. Haman, right? Yeah. Which, if I'm not mistaken, is he in the Esther story? He is, you're right. right? Yes, okay. Yeah. So this is a pretty nerdy Jewish reference, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the villain is Haman. And this is something South Park does really well, I think, is that they have some unbelievably deep, nerdy references to the Bible or to, uh, you know, pop culture Mormonism. or something. Mormonism. Yeah, like they... Either they already know it, or they do their research, because Haman in the South Park is just this like demon cloud thing in the sky who traps Moses or or wants to stop Moses or something, right? But it's like, what average American TV viewer is going to know Haman? Well, I <laughs> <Like> believe, a... <laughs> I'm pretty sure on this, in fact, I am, I'm positive on this, Haman was the one who wanted to kill all the Jewish people in the Esther story. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's even more that's even perfect. stop Moses, exactly. Yeah. So it's really nuanced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's clever. I like that you can watch a South Park episode and get like a villain or a, a storyline that if you don't know that, it doesn't make sense right away. But if you learn a little bit about the connection between that thing and what they're talking about in the story, you're like, oh, that's a deep cut, you know? Yeah. And South Park is so good at that. Let's all show Moses our soap sculptures so he may be pleased. <laughs> and I was like, why would a deity ever care about human prostrations of any wow. sort, let alone that sort? <laughs> Right, like this is something it, like I remember. Let's God will be pleased if we make this. And I'm like, I remember growing up thinking like that, that's bullshit. <laughs> what? Like if there is a God, he won't. And, and he's like, there's like wars going on, or like massive. There are things way more important than my painting or my macaroni the, picture. The soaps called. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. The Chin Pokemon episode. The flattery used by the Japanese playing to their egos. Oh, you must have a very big penis. <laughs> so that the, all the men don't um, get mad at them for making chim Pokemons that want to take over their town. And I, uh, <laughs> and the, flattery. the funny, okay, here's what's, here's a great South Parkism. So yeah, the Japanese executives uh, who make the chin Pokemon and the chin Pokemon are trying to brainwash the kids to take over America for Japan. The, executives flatter the American men talking about their big penises so that the American men won't get mad at them for having dolls that make them want to take over, whatever, right? But then what's so South Park about this is the cluelessness of the characters. So these two executives go up, well, one of them goes up to <laughs> the American women and also starts talking about how big their penises are. <laughs> and oh, it no. obviously doesn't work No, that doesn't them. go nearly as well. And then... And then, uh, but he's like, I'm a Japanese man. I have a very small penis, very small. And the women are like, it can't be that small. And then he just drops trow and shows and all the women are like, oh, oh my. (laughs) (laughs) 
like i don't know just something about that confluence of types of jokes is so south park yeah making fun of everybody see people and me the escapism what a great song in that one but then cartman gets see people he wants them to grow in his tank they look great on the picture they're just krill looking things in the tank so he says man maybe we need some we have sea people maybe we need some sea men and so they find out that their teacher miss chokes on dick died appropriately enough from having semen caught in her throat so they go into her autopsy take out the semen from her stomach put it into the tank and forgot about and so the equation is sea people plus sea men equals society I forgot, and so, like, I forgot like about that this level of over-the-top crude for a pun is also very good for South Park. <laughs> they, they do love their puns. Yeah. I also liked the humor in the Good Times with Weapon episode, which I found. So I know people love anime, anime, and I know anime has got great stories, and it'd be really fun to do an anime one day for this show. But I honestly find anime incomprehensible. Like, well, <laughs> there's would, so many anime where I just you would get things like Howl's Moving Castle, yeah, or Spirited yeah, yeah. Away. But or... the anime that they're satirizing in Good Times with Weapon is just like everything's flashing so fast, you don't know where anyone is or why they're doing anything. There's like nonsensical music playing over top too, and I thought that they humorously captured the incomprehensible aspect of some anime. Oh yeah, well like they're they're really <laughs> good at capturing the incomprehensible thing about anything, right? It's like yeah. again. Well, they they make fun of religion, but they also make fun of something that people are really passionate about, like anime. Yeah. And they find the thing like this is what I mean. It's not just religion. Like so many people think, oh, when you're when you're making fun of ideologies or something, you're 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 picking on religious yeah. people. Not at all. Like that's what I love about South Park. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. not just picking on one group of people. They're picking on this human tendency to be to think the thing you're importance. Obs- yeah, exactly. <laughs> to think the thing you're obsessed with. It's so much better. And I I don't know if we've mentioned this in an episode or not, but I, I think uh, David Foster Wallace is probably one of the greatest authors of our lifetime, like that, yeah. that, that wrote while, while we've been alive. And uh, his essay, This is Water, mm-hmm. where he talks about... And it's a commencement speech as well. It's a commencement speech, yeah. But where he talks about, uh, and just shout out to Infinite Jest, which is an incredible book that everyone should read if you want to slog through it for a long time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That was but, one of the hardest books I've ever had to read. Not because it's not interesting. It's unbelievably good. It's just the vocabulary is taxing and it's like 1,400 pages. Yeah, anyway, yeah. anyway, sorry, continue. The, the point that he says is like one of the things that we automatically assume it's hardwired into us that is so utterly wrong is that we're the most important thing in the universe, mm-hmm. right? But the human tendency is always to go back to that hardwired thing of thinking the thing that i love is the coolest thing yeah and south park and the humor of south park is that slap in the face that says hey (laughs) also there's these other thousands and millions and billions of people around you who also think like that and here are the (laughs) humorous and idiosyncratic ways that you are going to rub against up against those who have a different opinion than you (laughs) and here's why everything you think is ridiculous or or at least one aspect of it (laughs) yes that's so true Okay, so my most emotionally satisfying episodes of South Park are the ones where Cartman suffers. <laughs> I just yeah, have you to love say that. It. You love I it. love so Osimo and doubly so the episodes where his suffering is actually a consequence of something he was trying to do to hurt someone else. So 
probably the best example of this is the Osimo episode where he pretends to be a robot, but he finds out as a robot that Butters has a tape of him, Cartman, dancing around in underwear to or like wanting to make out with Justin Timberlake kind of thing. Butters is inadvertently blackmailing Cartman because he doesn't know it's Cartman because Butters is a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And so he just thinks it's an actual robot. (laughs) And and so like, actually, again, this is is another perfect South Park episode because it's another example of how Stan and Kyle just don't understand. So Butters thinks that Osimo is a real robot but there's no way in the world anyone with even a piece of a brain could think that. He's clearly a person, a kid dressed up as a robot, but Butters' parents play along because it's a game. Butters doesn't know. And I think as an audience, we're kind of like, oh, come on. Now you're, I can't sus- suspend my disbelief this hard. Right. But then Stan, there's an episode, or there's this part of the episode where Kyle shows up and he's like, Butters, this. <laughs> It's not. It's Cartman. It's Cartman, right? <laughs> and Butters like just won't hear it. So it's like, okay, you have characters in the show who have the audience perspective. We're fine. Okay, yeah. disbelief suspended again. <laughs> so this is an episode where Cartman is really suffering because he's sweating so hard, and you know robots don't eat. So the the scene that's so funny is in his desperation, he goes into the bathroom and he eats toothpaste, <laughs> and I just like that is such again the crux of a perfect south park joke where cartman is so so hurting from his own backfiring of his own shitty plan because all he wanted to do was hurt butters by making him i don't can't remember but he was going to do something mean to butters by tricking him into being while being awesome and it backfires on him so part that he's so hungry he has to eat toothpaste (laughs) Like, that is South Park that gold. Is, that is very much South Park, <laughs> yes. Like these nerdy references we talked about either. I love in the Best Friends for ep- Ever episode where it's heaven versus hell. They need a Keanu Reeves type character, and this is a reference to the movie Constantine. I love yes, that yes. when they do that. Randy drunkenly fighting all the other dads at the baseball game. I don't know. I just uh, always think of... I do like that I, I do think, This is America. This, 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 I thought this was America. <laughs> That's what's well, memed. I thought, like it's yep. become such yeah. a. I yeah, I like that episode. Where well, that go, something I'd like to talk about on that is yeah. Actually, no, we've already talked about it in the previous episode. But parents being so attached to what their children. Are oh doing, yeah, 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 yeah. We talked yeah. about that. Before. Yeah, we talked about that. And but it's just like how he's not paying attention to anything, and it's just funny how hard the boys work to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it is just yes. a, like a funny thing. Like, it's actually just as hard if the other team is doing the same thing. Like, if you're both, if you're doing the same thing as the other team, it's just as hard to lose as it is to win. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then isn't the, is it Butters who keeps making them win because he's actually still trying? No. Who is it? It's his. Oh, uh, oh, uh, uh, the, the other Kyle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I think maybe the Woodland Critters. From Woodland Critter Christmas, Barry the Bear, Porcupiney the Porcupine, Chickadee the Chickadee, etc. Yeah. And then how they are set up as these beautiful woodland critters who are getting hunted by a mountain lion. No, they're actually Satanists trying to bring the Antichrist into the world. Hail Satan! Let's hit, let's let's kill Porcupiney and have a blood orgy. Yeah, blood orgy. <laughs> and then in the Imagination Land they're, episode, they're like the really they're bad like, guys. They're the ones who go further than any of the other <laughs> evil creatures. Like they have. All the evil creatures in Imagination Land have Strawberry Shortcake captured, and they're like, "Well, let's uh, let's kill her." 
And then the woodland critters are like, no, y'all, that's not evil enough. Let's all get AIDS, poke out her eyes, and then piss in her eyes so she gets AIDS through her eyes. And then she'll be really hurt. Uh, Come on, all. Yeah, don't no, be they, down, y'all. They Let's say all get some, more like, horrible things. <laughs> just, like, like, the, just, but it's like the humor of South Park is so often the contrast between, because again, the animation is so perfect for the absurdity of it because it's just kind of so basic. The animation and the cuteness of the woodland critters versus how evil they are—that is a good South Park type of joke. Oh, where for they, sure. They they do a good contrast between the animation what, what of something. What do they call that when they 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 give you the something you don't expect? Right? It's uh, a surprise. Well, yeah. I guess <laughs> there's a word for it. <laughs> yeah, but no, I can't I'm sure there right is. Now. <laughs> but that the fact that there's probably a more a truer technical word doesn't mean I won't no, no, give you're a right. smart ass right. remark. <laughs> That's true. That's fair. <laughs> And then man, bear, pig, half man, uh, half man, bear, bear <laughs> half pig. Oh, see, and I think this is something we're just lacking in the culture now. But like being able to make fun of even the sacred cows and like climate change, sacred cow. Yeah. If you, if you're a climate change denier, you're like you are on the <laughs> fringes of society at this point, right? Yeah. People people will ostracize the hell out of you. Well, and what was so so okay? So for anyone who doesn't know, man, bear, pig is a birth of the mind of Al Gore in South Park, where he's convinced this man, bear, pig exists. No one's seen it. No one knows, but it's it's out there, and he's going to help you. And so the obvious satire is on his movie an inconvenient truth right which was about climate change which is about climate change and so i think again this is a great south park satire in their humor is that because again i don't i never get the impression that south park is saying hey climate change is bullshit or we're denying it what they're doing is making fun of the way al gore advocates yeah, for climate yeah. change. Knowledge. It's over there, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the worst thing ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna destroy us all. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's a joke about Al Gore more than climate change, right? And yet, this is what I love. It's the role of offending everyone, mm-hmm. offending the powerful. It's like you've you've said before, and you said in the first episode. The interesting thing about South Park is it is a litmus test for a society, and and it makes fun of the powerful. Yeah, always. That is such a essential role in a free and democratic society is for groups of people that will just make fun of the powerful Mm -hmm. all the time no matter what because if they don't do that you know the i i'm a big and deep believer that the most dangerous thing in society is concentrated power Mm -hmm. Uh, i think all of the most evil things that have happened throughout human history have been done by groups of people who had disproportionate amount of power over other people and there are societies all over the world in which making fun of or criticizing the powerful will mm-hmm. get you in jail or dead or worse, tortured, right? Well, that really is supposed to be the deep ethos of the United States, is that you can make fun of any damn thing you want. <laughs> and I mean, credit to the institutions of the United States, like a lot of people right now are making fun of the president and they're fine. <laughs> yeah. Nothing bad is happening to them, right? And uh, I think that's a huge testament to what has been produced in the free world. Yeah. Well, I think that Donald Trump is a very good test of the American institutions. And I think that they're doing pretty good. Yeah, they're holding <laughs> up. They're holding up. Yeah, exactly. I would just say 
Mint Berry Crunch. We brought the crunch. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's worth just reiterating from last South Park episode two how I feel like this show is meant for the same people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know? A thousand small sanities. Yeah, right? it is. It's um, how it's just a show. Every episode, it's giving another view of the absurd, but then bringing it back and saying, you know what it is? I, I thought about this too again. South Park is representative of the well-adjusted person's first reaction, like their first impression of something crazy in the world. <laughs> like, do you know how it's like before you catch yourself maybe being offensive or impolite maybe or having bad tact. So you know like you're just sitting around and you hear something crazy and you're like, "What?" You're like, "Yeah, that's absurd." <laughs> that's crazy or or you're like, yeah. it's "Bullshit." Yeah. Or and then you kind of realize, "Oh, oh, ooh, maybe my reaction would be considered offensive to someone because maybe they believe that thing that I was just involuntarily laughed at." And so that pre-conscious involuntary laugh at absurdity is just what south park makes shows about <laughs> yeah unapologetically <laughs> you know, they take that to 22 minutes <laughs> without stopping without and then giving not an apology at the end but a more a recognition thought yeah. about yeah. everything and so hopefully there was some things in there that <laughs> were relevant to any of that. Yeah, yeah. This is our least attached to the source material episode yet, I would say. For sure. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's okay. Anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, my name's Luke Mason. And mine's David Parker. See you later. Bye.